Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, as calls for police reform echo through Congress, state capitol, and streets across the country, we're joined by a law enforcement veteran who led a group recommending changes to President Obama five years ago. He's Ron Davis, the former police chief in East Palo Alto. And last week, he was tapped by Governor Gavin Newsom to help lead California's task force on police reform. Ron Davis, welcome to Political Breakdown. You are a man in demand. We're grateful you made some time for us. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to our discussion. Well, let's begin with what everyone's talking about. Uh, And I'm curious, as somebody who has spent as many decades as you have in law enforcement, as an African-American man whose father was a police officer, what do you make of this moment we're in right now in the wake of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis? You know, um, after 35 years, I think when the Oakland Police Academy in 1985, 35 years later, I have to honestly say that I think this has been the most significant moment during that 35 years. And what I mean by that, this feels more than a moment. I think we're amidst uh, uh, amid a new civil rights movement that is going to focus on policing reform, which I also think would include some criminal justice reform. So the tragedy prevented that crisis, that tragedy presented an opportunity. So I'm optimistic. I, I see things different. I see things happening different. It's a different opportunity, but it's definitely a unique time. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things we've heard from other from activists is that they feel like this is a more multicultural uprising, that this isn't just um, people of color, black people coming out, but really a lot of allies. Um, and, and one of the big kind of questions here, I think, is when we talk about police reform is this question of systemic racism in our country. Um, you talked to Congress this week about this issue and and you talked about how police departments were designed in some ways to oppress people of color. Can you can you put that in context? What are we talking about here when we talk about systemic racism in policing? Right. So when I say systemic racism, not necessarily the police departments themselves as much as the policing system in the United States. And so if you look at the historical context, the first first police were, were actually created. The first system was designed to protect the institution of slavery. We then used police to enforce Jim Crow laws and black codes. And basically, we've used the police to then 
enforce discriminatory laws that run in books, whether it was voting, whether it was uh, expressing the First Amendment. You just look at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and let's look at historical context. In the 90s, we used the police for the war on drugs, which turned out to be war on communities of color. So the systems were designed years ago, and they were designed to enforce discriminatory laws. And my, my concern is, is that many of those operating systems, how we fight crime, how we view the enforcement of laws, how we deploy officers, are based on a model that is still dysfunctional, so that even good police officers have bad outcomes. And bad officers get to hide into the system and operate with impunity. And so when you say structural racism or institutional racism, people need to understand that is not suggesting that the police departments are right for racist cops. It's suggesting that it's not. It's suggesting that the vast majority of them are good men and women trying to do a tough job, but even they will have bad outcomes because of how we police, why we police, and what they're told to do. But you have spent so much time in your career reforming your own police department in the case of East Palo Alto and leading the task force for President Obama, and yet these problems continue. So does that mean that these sort of I don't want to call them Band-Aid approaches, but even if it's systematic reform, systemic reform, does that mean what really what we need to do is just start over in some way? I think it, it, I like the way you put it. In some way, yes. Now, the start over means what I mean by that is the systems are working as designed, so we need to replace the system. And what we've done over the years, we, we fix different parts of the system and put a Band-Aid here, a Band-Aid there. We make progress. We move forward. We have evolved. There's a lot to be proud of what we have done. But these continued tragedies, not just George Floyd, the continued tragedies show us that it's bigger than a few bad apples. So we're going to have to, what I would say, reconstruct the system and create new ones. But more importantly, we have to ask ourselves a question. Every community member or law enforcement should ask the question, what should the police be doing anyway? Let's reimagine it and see how we can enhance public Yeah, I mean, that is a big sort of thread in this uh, defund the police movement, which I think can mean different things depending on where you sit politically. Um, Talk about what it means to you. And isn't that maybe an area where the left and the right or however you want to say it in this situation, the, the activists and the police could agree? Because I hear police saying all the time, we don't want to be social workers. We don't want to be drug treatment counselors. We shouldn't be out here, you know, resolving small disputes. Um, isn't that an argument for taking that money and giving it to, to people who are equipped to handle those issues? So you, you hit the I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that most police will tell you this, most community members, we all agree that police should not be doing, that we over-rely on police to solve social problems that we're neither trained for or equipped to handle. And that when, this, for example, mental health crisis, if we've now dismantled mental health crisis around the country so that the largest mental health providers are county jails. And so if there's no treatment, there's no medication, the system has failed, we have failed, then that, when that person is now in a crisis at 2 o'clock in the morning, running around butt naked with a butcher knife is up to a 25-year-old cop now to resolve something that we have failed to deal with, that we have given no tools to deal with and no help to deal with. And so the theory would be if you invest in mental health services, maybe he never goes to crisis. And if he does go to crisis, someone can respond with the officer that's more equipped to de-escalate that so that we don't have the kind of tragedies that we have. So we're in agreement that we need to identify where funds should go, where they would do the most good, and quit over-relying on police to solve every crime problem when you know crime 
is, a, is actually a symptom or a manifestation of other social disorders. But all due respect, it's very easy to say, yeah, we agree we should have social workers, but it's not so easy to say, and we want to take this $10 million away from you, police department, and, and put it over there, right? I mean, we're seeing this fight already start to play out in a lot of cities. Right. I mean, if you just arbitrarily start cutting a police department, I think the thing you can expect is to have a cut in services. You may compromise public safety. So I think the discussion um, about uh, investing in the services that go to, to, the, to the core issues of crime is a discussion community should have. What do we need to invest in those, in those areas? And that once those services are working, you can start reducing the footprint. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some things we can do right now with communities. We can streamline some processes. We can stop doing some things that we don't need to do. We can try to find to, to the extent that we can afford it, uh, divert some funds. But it's a, it's a more strategic thought, a long-term investment, which you're not going to do overnight is to cut the department by $100 million and say, here, it may take two years to build up the system big enough to address the concerns that require the police to go to begin with. And during those three, two years, you have more have sufficient cops to respond. So I think we have to be smart. We have to be strategic. I think this discussion has to run away from terms that are confusing and everybody can misinterpret and look at the area of how do we imagine public safety so that we are efficient with tax dollars, we are effective, and that we use the police for what they were designed to use to protect and serve and not put them in circumstances where the only tool they have to respond is on a utility belt. And you know what they say, if all you have is a hammer, then everything's a nail. Mm -hmm. So it's unfair to the officers and unfair to the community. You know, every large organization has a culture, right? I mean, whether it's a nonprofit organization or a police department. And so much of what we're talking about, it seems to me, is changing the culture and the way uh, police departments look at the people they're supposed to be serving. But you also have unions that represent the police officers and in many cases are obstacles to discipline, getting rid of bad cops. So how do you, how do you think of the union and the unions? There are many of them, of course. But, you know, how do you think of it and can they become an ally or does that need to be rethought completely also? See, I would say this. I think, I, I think they could become an ally and I don't think the unions are the problem I think the union contracts provide a lot of hindrance and, and obstruction to advancing policing, if that makes sense. I think the officers, like any employee, has the right to unionize. I think the union job is to protect their working conditions, to negotiate collective bargaining rights for better, for better pay and benefits, to take care of the family, to make sure management treats them fairly and equitable. Like, everyone deserves a working environment like that. All of us do. But when you start negotiating conditions that says, I can't interview you for two days after you kill somebody, that's not a working condition. That is an obstacle to justice, right? So we need to reevaluate the contracts and start making sure that there are no provisions, whether intended or unintended, that would prohibit accountability or allow officers to get literally away with murder or to operate with impunity. And so although officers are due their administrative due process, it cannot override the constitutional practices or rights of the community. And I just remind community members of this. Unions don't pass contracts by themselves. And so while we got millions of people marching and demonstrating, and rightfully so, and good, good for us, where are they at during a city council meeting when you're ratifying a union contract? There's two people in the audience. We need to educate our city councils, our legislature, to make sure they're not passing bill of rights for officers or contracts, not the ones that protect their rights or protect them, but the ones that are that are, are really prohibiting accountability. We need to stop that. So I think the union is not the enemy, but some of these contracts are absolutely a hindrance to accountability. 
I mean, but the unions negotiate the contract and they're the ones pushing them. And I mean, we see in cities like San Francisco, which is largely very progressive and has had, I think, more political support for reform than perhaps some places, a POA, you know, who spent, I think, more money challenging a single DA candidate they didn't like than that candidate spent on himself. I mean, how like to Scott's question about the culture. Is there, I mean, what conversations are you having or have you had with rank and file, with union leaders about whether they're willing to come along and even reopen some of these questions over, you know, the discipline you're talking about, um, you know, questions of use of force policies? I mean, it does seem like that has really been a hard thing for even, you know, progressive chiefs and mayors to tackle. Right. There's no, there's no, I mean, there's no doubt about it. A lot of these contracts are tying the hands of chiefs from from establishing high levels of accountability in a culture of accountability. And there may be individual agencies. Some unions are stronger than the others. Some have larger political action groups that they then basically yield a lot of political power because they donate to council members and district attorneys. So there is some reform that can be done in that arena as well with regards to the political actions of a union. But there's also the community engagement. If you see, if you don't like the way the union is going, then why would you vote for the person that's endorsed by the union? Mm-hmm. Power perceived is power achieved, and we have to give them the power in order for them to take the power. So I think there's a way to reform that. Now, the other question is I have talked to some unions and a lot of rank and file and why I think this moment is different. I think everyone is recognizing things have to be different, that change is coming. I think most rank and file officers just want to make sure that the change is fair. Now, you also said something I want to make sure people understand, and some people are going to get mad at me when I say this. The rank and file in many cases may be different than the union. Mm-hmm. Do not always conflate them to be the one. Totally. Just because, <laughs> right, just because the union says something does not necessarily mean it represents the core of the rank and file of that department. Most cops just want to do their job, but they count on the union to protect their interests when they're basically, you know, when they need it. That doesn't mean that they believe everything that comes out the union president's mouth or anything like that. So there's definitely reform needed in the unions with regards to policing, with their political act, act, activity, with um, the contracts and the provisions that prohibit accountability. But we've got to do it together. We've got to do it to make sure that city councils know, community members know, legislators know, so that the negotiations go different. So I would call on unions right now to be able to sit down with the city and be able to say, let's identify some of those things that maybe either was intended or is unintended that are stopping accountability and see if we can reopen, renegotiate, so that we can show this country that we're prepared to move forward. I think we're ready to do that. Now, time will tell, but I'm talking to rank and file. I think everyone knows this is a different time. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. Lots more to talk about. And when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Ron Davis. He's co-chairing Governor Gavin Newsom's new task force on police reform. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. 
You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Ron Davis. He led President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. And its recommendations, of course, are getting fresh attention in the wake of George Floyd's death and calls for police reform. And Ron, you followed in your father's footsteps. He was a cop in Philadelphia. And, you know, based on your age, I'm guessing that was, you know, in the 60s and 70s, maybe the early 80s when you were growing up. And that city had a terrible history of racism in the police department under mayors like Frank Rizzo. So what, what was your father's experience as an African-American police officer in Philly? You know, very interesting question. Um, in fact, my father had no desire to be a police officer, and he was recruited as part of a court action and consent decree mandating that the Philadelphia Police Department change its discriminatory practices in hiring and came under a consent decree. So already you start to see that that kind of change came because instead of finding ways to exclude blacks at that time, or minorities, they, they were forced to deal with it. They even had to deal with the court order for women. They came up with some standard. You had to be 5'7", which would take a lot of women out of play, regardless of who you are, right? So, so he came up at a time where, you know, and even then, blacks, you know, black cops stayed with black cops, but it was probably a little bit more integrated. So it was a different time. When him and I talked when I became a rookie cop in Oakland, you could see it was a different time. But his experiences and being on the street were invaluable. But even my dad would tell you, and he has since passed, that, you know, how we policed and the role that police played in the community was pretty, at that time, pretty tense, very tense in the 60s and 70s. And black cops were not enough to really lessen that. And so they came under fire as well in some cases, although I think there were, for, there were associations formed with black cops where they tried to push back and to further diversify uh, and things of that nature. I do want to, can I correct one, one quick thing? Sure. Um, I keep hearing they call it to Gavin Newsom to put together a task force, and it's not so much a task force that the governor has put together as much as asking Latifah and myself to work with the subject matter experts around the state to identify some of those best practices because I think he's at the point now that we don't have to relitigate, we don't have to re research or find new evidence, it's time to put things together to move towards action. So this is not going to be a task force in which we deliberate and debate and Mm -hmm. have a lot of evidence. This is going to be more of us leading and talking to all the state associations and stakeholders and community and getting the feedback so we can then pull out of it some of the top recommendations for the governor. So I just wanted to make sure that was a little bit different than the Obama task force, which is still heck of fast, and we, we did it in three months. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned Latifa there. She, of course, uh, Latifa Simon was our guest last week uh, before she was named to that task force, I believe, or to that organization, the group, the panel that you described. So if right. you want to hear what she had to say about all this, uh, you can tune into that. <laughs> I just wanted, but a, a quick follow-up about your, your, your dad. Did he, you said he didn't want to become a cop, particularly he was recruited, but did he encourage you to go into law enforcement? Or what made you, what did you see as a kid that made you want to do it? You know, actually, he did not. He never, he didn't push me that way, but he didn't push, he didn't push me towards it. He didn't push me away from it. And growing up, and one of the things that stood out for me was the camaraderie of cops at the time, right? In other even, words, even, though, I, even though African-Americans weren't always part of the club in some ways? Yeah, but most of the camaraderie would have been other black cops at that time, right? Ah. But it was the camaraderie. It was the pride I saw when he put on a uniform. I mean, he was meticulous. The creases had to be perfect. 
and he took pride in that. It was um, knowing that he was there to help. So I think at a very young age, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to be a cop, and I went into the military first, and then it became a natural evolution. So he didn't, like I said, didn't push me that way, but I went that way anyway. <laughs> and you went that way, you mentioned this, but you, you went through the academy and were hired by Oakland Police Department, which of course has had its own series of um, racist incidents and, and it's consent decrees and oversight. What was it like becoming a black officer in OPD in the 80s? I mean, did you see those problems pretty clearly from the get-go or did it take any time? No, I was in the academy my first day, not even in uniform, still wearing a suit. And a deputy chief at that time came in and looked around the room. I looked around the room, it was probably 35 of us and maybe six of us were of color. And he says, some of you in here simply because of affirmative action. Mm-hmm. But then he says something, that, and I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> but then he said something that, that, that also told me that there was a second part of the equation. The only question I have for you, now that you're here, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. So I got to, I know, it kind of was almost like he was removing, that's the discussion, that's what everybody's going to assume. If you're black now and you make the police department, you get promoted, it must be affirmative action versus I passed the test. I did well in my interview. I actually deserved to be here. Um, and so that kind of stayed with me. One, it showed me just the level of how race is still impacting even then. And it showed me, but at the same time, if I work hard, maybe I can make some advancement for the organization. You were with the OPD at a time of, you know, Marisa alluded to some of the problems, the Ryder scandal, among others, those rogue cops that were planting evidence, beating up suspects. Did, did you see all those problems coming? And did you ever participate, not in that, but, you know, I know you did undercover drug busts, for example, which, you know, we look back on those now and it's like, oh, really targeting, you know, young men of color in particular. Um, did you have qualms about what you were doing? And, you know, did you see it all coming before it happened? No, I tell you this. When I was a, a a cop before I made rank, so in the early in the came on eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight. I worked at that time. You guys may remember we had a drug task force. Mm-hmm. And, and here's what I mean by the system. So the system was designed, and I was convinced, and I have to admit to this, convinced that the scourge of crack cocaine was destroying my community. And so every time I put a handcuffs on a drug dealer, I was helping my community. And that's how cops are led to believe until you look back and go, I don't know if that was that helpful. There might have been better alternatives and options, and all I did was create a generation of people that now have no options because they got to check the box because they're in jail and they make, because they had no, some, some people had no options. So as I started seeing more and learning more and started seeing my community, it became clear to me that there's a, there are better ways to fight crime. With regards to the rioters, you know, I'll be honest with you, you saw that coming a mile away. But <laughs> once again is – when political leaders are, are promising 20% crime reductions, right, and that somehow the police can deliver it, which is nonsense, then the only way they can deliver it is the oversaturation of cops in the neighborhoods, which leads to abuses. So people like me and others were yelling and screaming that this was predictable, and this is why, they're in the, this was why the consent decree was appropriate, because it goes to my point about the systems again. It's about mm-hmm. why you're out there, what you're told to do, and how you're held accountable to it. So... For those of us at my age now, is that 35 years later, we have, to, we have to accept accountability for the contributions that we did and then take responsibility to change the system, which I've been focused on for 20 years now, to make sure that we never go back to that, those days where, it was just a, where the strategy of this country was the mass arrest of young men of color. Yeah, but I mean, how 
hard was that? Because one of the things we hear a lot about, and I've heard you speak about it, is this issue of groupthink, right? And, and, and you know, it's the, it's the issue of culture we talked about earlier, that it's hard once, you know, sometimes even if you are being oppressed, you become part of a system that oppresses and become the oppressor, right? Like, so are, were there individual conversations you were having? I mean, did you ever feel like a pariah raising these issues? Like, how do you feel like you were able to kind of have those conversations, not with the broader public, but, but with the people within the department that mattered? You know what? I, I think it's, it's, I think a lot of people have this every day. I don't think there's any super strength required or superpowers needed. I think you have to be comfortable in who you are. And, and, and I would tell every officer of color to remember a couple of key points that mean something to me. One, when people tell you that you're a cop that happens to be a black, you must stop and remind them, no, you're not. You're a black man that happens to be a cop. There are two different things, right? Don't give up your identity to wear blue. You're not blue. This, that blue, this blue lives argument, quite frankly, is an insult to me as a black officer. I'm not a blue life. I'm a black man with the experience of a black man in this country. You will not take that away from me, and I will bring that to the job. The second, I mean, so those are the kind of things we have to remember. And the second is you must always stand up for what's right because silence is complicity, and silence is violence. And so that's the part where I think once cops understand that, then they can actually push back. And there's more and more venues now, more and more uh, through, the, through the Minority Officers Association, through the things that – that exists for officers to for inspector generals and and whistleblower there's more and more of that and the more we diversify the more those perspectives come into play to where it's not that you're standing in the wind by yourself with superpowers is that you're bringing your perspective to the workplace and it's as valued as anyone else one of the greatest ways to reduce force in police departments and i'm gonna get in trouble for saying this is to add women to the force hmm. there's actually research on that Right. Women use less force and still accomplish the same exact outcomes. In other words, they take bad guys to jail just like men do, but they do it with less force and under less and under better circumstances. So that so the more you diversify your department from gender, from race, the better decisions you make and the more you start learning what kind of impact your decisions actually have on people. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would assume that you would extend that call to white cops, too, that they need to stand up when they see something wrong as well. Absolutely. And that's just for cops, right? It's the, and we're seeing this, this is the issue that we're looking at in Minneapolis, right? Mm -hmm. The standing by, this bystander stuff that you just stand by can't say anything. And so when I became a chief, one of the things I did in East Palo Alto, one of the first of my deadly sins was the idea that the failure to report misconduct will meet the same discipline as that misconduct. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking today with Ron Davis, a former police chief in East Palo Alto. He led President Obama's task force on 21st century policing and was just tapped by Governor Newsom to help reform policing here in California. You know, you did spend time, Ron Davis, with uh, with the president's task force, obviously. And, you know, it's been five years since those uh, recommendations were released. Do you feel like anything changed as a result of that? And I mean, obviously, you're very hopeful now. Um, are those things, is that going to be dusted off now and, and implemented in more places? Is that the hope? Or, or have well, we moved think, on? Well, I, interestingly, though, when I left the before we left, when I was in the administration, so not, not only was I the executive director of the task force, but when I, got, when I went to the administration, I was director of the cops office. Now, for those who don't know, the cops office is community-oriented policing services. And we're basically manage about $1.4 billion in grants on an annual basis and probably put out a fresh two, $300 million every year. So when we put out the recommendations, I had the ability as director of that office to take 
$200, $250 million in grants to incentivize the recommendations. So we made a lot of investments as we left. And once we left the administration, I could still see those investments. A lot of people were still moving forward and still embracing it. Now, candidly, the Trump administration tried everything they could to undo it, take it down off the Internet, throw it in the trash can. But a lot of it continued because of the investments, not to the rate we would want it, but it still had some progress. And we know that because we're working on a project right now where we're, we were trying to identify exactly what kind of impact it has had before Mr. Floyd was killed. Now that this tragic murder occurred, I think people are going back going, maybe I should read that again. <laughs> so it is being revived. It is coming back alive. And I think it's a roadmap where people can embrace and start moving. But it had a pretty – I think it was a similar document. It had impacted more than any report I've seen in my time, but it did stall. Yeah. In fact, that's a better word. But now it's coming alive again. Yeah, I mean, you talked earlier about the need for people and communities to be out there at city council meetings talking about these you know, police contracts, putting the pressure on. Briefly, we have like a minute left. What's the role of the federal government here, and what's the role at the local and state level? Like, does it all have to happen together? Well, policing is primarily a local function, so local communities – and states should really, I mean, local communities should really invest heavy in making, providing oversight, understanding policing, and making it clear what you want from public safety so that the police are there to serve the community. Uh, and so that's a good thing. From the federal government point of view, they can invest to make sure we do more and more research so that the, the way we fight crime is evidence-based and doesn't have collateral damage like mass arrests of people of color. They can hold individual departments accountable through pattern practice investigations and lawsuits and consent decrees. They go individual officers together. So the federal government has a role, but it's really incumbent on each resident to look at uh, we want you to be a co-producer of public safety, that you guys are working together to make the community safe. All right, Ron Davis, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for everything you've done and Thank look you. forward to seeing what you come up with uh, with the governor. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I am at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter, too. I'm at Scott Schaefer. We'll see you next time, everybody. Stay healthy. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. 
Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 